MacCast, Sunday, August 13th, 2023. This episode of the MacCast is brought to you by ZocDoc. More on them later in the show. Hey, Mac Geeks, it's time for your MacCast, the show for Mac Geeks by Mac Geeks. I'm Adam, and this is the show where we discuss all things Macintosh. How are you doing? Welcome back to the MacCast. Glad to have you back here for another episode of Hints, Tips, Tricks, and all the goings-ons in the Apple and Mac community. How are you doing? I hope you are having a wonderful, wonderful day, and things are going well for you. It's been uh, pretty busy around here at MacCast HQ. Actually had a chance to get out and hang out with some of you, those of you who were able to make it out to MacStock up in uh, Woodstock, Illinois. Was really happy to see everybody, hang out with some old friends. It's been a while since we've done that. The pandemic sort of put a put a damper on those sorts of things. But now we are back, and that was a whole bunch of fun. So um, just saying hi again to everybody who came out. And if you ever have a chance to make it out to that event, uh, I think they're already making plans for next year. So you can check out Mac Stock Conference and Expo for all the details on that. But looking through the show notes this week, we got quite a few things to talk about. We're going to be talking about the possible next iPhone event. Uh, we now have some details or predictions, at least, on when that might happen. We'll talk about some of the announcements and what we're expecting from the iPhone 15, the latest and greatest on that. We've got M3 Max coming down the pike. And pike or pipe? Probably pipe is the, is the phrase. But yeah, we'll talk about those a little bit. Uh, we'll talk about Apple Watch, a um, little update on Apple Vision Pro, and some new Apple Music features or a new playlist that you might be interested in. I know uh, it's something that I'm enjoying. That'll round out the news for this week. And then we had a lot of questions this week surrounding your Mac and privacy and security. So we're going to get to a few listener questions uh, that deal with that in various aspects. So should be very interesting, also very informative. So I say we just dive right into things, starting off with the iPhone 15 and uh, when we might get an announcement for that. We now have some indicators that Apple, uh, on specifically when Apple might be holding that iPhone 15 event. According to Bloomberg's Mark Gurman, the event will likely take place either September 12th or 13th. That's a Tuesday or a Wednesday. Typically, Apple would go with the Tuesday, the 12th, but there are some other indicators looking like they might go on the 13th. Usually, they don't go on a Wednesday unless there's some sort of holiday or some other event but likely going to be one of those two days. And Gurman uh, predicts that then pre-sales would happen that Friday, the 15th, and then shipments could start, start as early as the 22nd. I think that's a little bit bullish considering some of the rumors we've been hearing about possible production delays. Maybe they'll do a staggered release and there'll be different models. We've seen that in the past. So who really knows? Uh, but there, there have been production issues. I would imagine the pre-order dates and things might be a little bit in flux depending upon which model uh, you're interested in, whether it be the Plus model or just the iPhone models, all those sorts of things. And 9to5Mac also had a report that in a way kind of backs this up. They had more than one iPhone carrier partner 
that has told employees that they can't take time off during the week of the 13th. So that seems to be further evidence that that could be the week of the iPhone announcement. The event is expected to use the same sort of pre-recorded format that we've grown used to following the pandemic. So no more live in-person announcements, although many of us have been hoping that would come back, you know, after the pandemic was over. But Apple seems to be preferring this pre-recorded format. They're still going to have select press invited to the Apple campus to watch at the Steve Jobs Theater. And they will have that typical hands-on area outside so members of the press can get hands-on with some of the new devices, but it looks like we're going to be continuing this sort of pre-recorded format. I kind of like it because I think the pacing goes a little bit quicker, but I do miss the spontaneity of kind of those in-person live sort of events. So I don't know. How do you feel about it? Do you like the new format? Do you like the older format? Uh, Do you wish they were going back to it? Shoot me some feedback, matcast at gmail.com. As far as what the iPhone 15 is going to look like, we're starting to get some of those final details. There was a case leak of a reported iPhone 15 Pro case. They called it an Ultra case, but I think they really meant Pro. And it supposedly shows the mute switch being replaced with a multi-function action button like the Apple Watch Ultra. I think that's maybe why they called it the iPhone 15 ultra but the idea is and we've heard this rumor that apple might be replacing that that uh, mute switch with a button that would function more contextually based on the app much in the same way it does with the apple watch ultra so pressing that button could do multiple functions depending upon what you what what you're using or what app you're working with and they say that because of that they might move the action for uh, shutting down your phone or turning off your phone from that weird combination you have to do with the volume up, volume down and you know press and hold the sleep-wake button to just using that action button and the sleep-wake button. So that combo could change. Also things like when you're in the photo app, snapping a photo could be moved to that button. So those are the kinds of things where it would be uh, a little bit more functionality. And even you could do a light press to do autofocus, say, in the photo app. And then third-party apps could also take advantage of that action button in various ways. So that could be happening. There's also a rumor that a future version of the iPhone SE might also get that action button, although it's expected to be just a revised version of basically the iPhone 14. Um, no word on when the SE model will be coming out uh likely sometime next year when they'll do that update. The Pro models are rumored to maybe be getting more storage at the base level, starting at a minimum storage of 256 gigabytes. Currently, they start at 128. Uh, The non-Pro models are expected to stay there. But uh, the model, the Pro models also could get uh, more storage on the higher end. Currently, they cap out at one gigabyte. Rumors are that they might this year moved to two gigabytes of maximum storage. So everything kind of going up. We also know, and we're continuing to hear predictions that the pricing on the pro models is likely going to go up as well, about a hundred dollars us across the board. So the base iPhone 15 pro is expected to start at 1099 versus 999 us. And 
The Pro Max model is expected to start at $1,199 US versus $1,099 US. So I guess you get more storage, but you're also going to pay a little bit more uh, for those Pro models. Now, there are also rumors that the iPhone 15 Pro models could have an upgraded case material moving from stainless steel to titanium like the Apple Watch Ultra. So that would be a nice little update that would allow it to potentially be lighter and more durable. Um, Just a cool material as well, right? So I guess Apple's going to give us a little bit for that extra cost. But, uh, you know, I never like it when I have to pay more, pay more for my iPhone. And I I think I mentioned this before. I'm seriously considering, depending upon the feature updates, because it does sound like the iPhone iPhone 15 Pro Max model is going to get a lot more enhancements than the iPhone 15 Pro, and I'm not a big fan of the larger form factor. I'm seriously considering this year maybe skipping the iPhone for the first time. Yeah, I say that now, but you know me, I'm a huge Apple fan, so it's going to be hard to uh, to pass up getting a, getting a new iPhone. So wait and see on that, but right now I'm trying to talk myself into it, and uh, it's probably not going to work. Um, we do get con- we do continue to get leaked images of the iPhone 15 Pro models with a USB-C port. I think at this point that's a for- foregone conclusion that we're going to be moving to USB-C on all future Apple products moving forward. This is the death of the Lightning connector. It's time to move on. USB-C can take its place, and it's going to be universal across the board with Apple products. So the iPhone 15, I fully expect to have USB-C. As far as what the chips look like, there was an interesting report this week from the information about the A17 processor. Uh, They say that Apple has made this quote-unquote sweetheart deal with TSMC for the three nanometer chips that will be exclusive to the iPhone Pro models for the first year. So that's another thing and another big difference between the Pro and the non-Pro models is is rumors are that the non-Pro models will continue to use the A16 processor and the A17 three nanometer chip is going to be exclusive to the Pros. But according to the information, they say that Apple basically has exclusivity on three nanometer process chips from TSMC for a year. But more importantly, that Apple does not have to pay for defective chips. So typically, when you do those orders, you're ordering the entire wafer. And there's often a certain percentage or, or a portion of those that are don't pass basically the quality control standards. And a lot of times those are what end up being called binned chips where they'll reduce the clock speed and put them in lower end models, things like that. But according to this report, Apple is not paying for those. Now, analyst Ming-Chi Kuo came out and clarified exactly what's going on here. And it's not that Apple doesn't pay for the cost of the defective chips. They do in a way. It's just different. So like I said, most of the time when you order chips, you buy them as a what's called a wafer buy. So you're buying the entire wafer. You're agreeing on a price for that. And then there's also the finished good, which is the actual processor. Now, Apple buys the chips as finished goods and they actually always have so they only technically buy good chips but according to Ming-Chi Kuo TSMC allocates most of the cost of the defective chips into the selling price of each finished chip so they're still getting paid they're still getting their money um, and uh, that's really what's going on so Apple's going to pay more per chip 
and that offsets the cost of the quote-unquote lost or defective chips that TSMC can't get out of that wafer. Now, yield rates are reportedly around 70 to 80%, so that means about one-fifth of those chips don't meet Apple's standards. This is a new process. This is not something that is unknown. It's typically as they work out and work through these new manufacturing processes, they're going to have to um, you know, deal with that kind of adjustment. And again, Apple always pays more up front in that first year for those newer processors. So this is all normal stuff in the supply chain and to be expected. The bigger news on this is that Apple does have access exclusive to that three nanometer technology, both for iPhone chips and for their M series processors. So that gives them a big leg up against their competitors, at least when it comes to TSMC as a, uh, a chip partner. Now there's other chip partners out there working on three nanometer processes. So, you know, mileage may vary, but Apple seems to have an advantage right now when it comes to processor tech. Now, for the A17 processor, there has been some debate on what the RAM configuration is going to look like. We had heard that Apple might bump up to 8 gigabytes of RAM from 6 gigabytes, but more recent reports are indicating that it is going to be 6 gigabytes just in just in the Pro models, just like it is currently for the iPhone 14 Pros. One big difference, though, that does seem to be confirmed is they are going to be adding an additional GPU core, so the the uh, A17 will have a six-core GPU and a six-core CPU. Uh, the current version, the A16 Bionic, has a six-core CPU and just a five-core GPU. So one more GPU core. What that translates to in terms of actual performance gain, we'll have to wait and see. It's also worth noting that there were references in the latest Apple TV betas that seem to support the rumor that the iPhone 15 and 15 Plus models will not have the A17 chips. The model numbers in the code indicate 15,4 and 15,5, where 15 is the same number Apple has used for the iPhone 14 models, so 15,1, 2, 3, and 4 were all your iPhone 14, iPhone 14 Pro models. The Pro models are listed as 16,1 and 16,2. And so that seems to be a little hint that Apple's likely sticking with the A16 processor in the entry-level iPhones this year, which is going to be kind of a big deal. So Apple really trying to, it feels like, push consumers, at least this year, more toward the Pro models by packing in the features on that lineup and sort of leaving the entry-level models out a little bit. Now, I think ultimately that will impact their sales. I have a feeling, and there's other analysts that are predicting this, that this year's iPhones are basically going to sell about the same quantities as last year's. So we're not expecting to see a lot of big iPhone growth or growth in iPhone sales this year. And I think making decisions like this on Apple's part is going to add into that. It's going to sort of support the fact that you're going to have a lot of people, probably mostly on the entry-level side, you know, not folks who are crazy like myself and early adopters that always want to have the latest and greatest, even if it's only a minor revision. But your average consumer is probably going to be looking at their iPhone 13 or iPhone 14 
looking at the 15 and going, yeah, there's just not enough there. It's not worth the upgrade this year. I'm going to wait one more year and see what happens. So it'll be interesting to see how this impacts sales numbers, but just be aware if you want all the latest and greatest tech, you might be having to lay out a little more cash for the iPhone uh, Pro model. And we will find out here hopefully in a couple of weeks, if the predictions turn out to be true on when the announcement date is. We are also expecting a follow-up Mac event this year in October, and it's expected that that is when Apple will introduce the first M3 Macs. Mark Gurman claims that Apple has started testing a Mac model with a model identifier Mac 15,012, that's likely a version of the Mac Mini with the M3 chip. The one that they've seen in testing features an 8-core CPU with 4 efficiency cores and 4 high-performance cores and a 10-core GPU along with 24 gigabytes of RAM. Now, that would be a higher-end model. It's not expected that the uh, entry-level model would have that much RAM. Probably would come with the standard 8 gigabytes, um, but that's what they're kind of seeing. And those cores do line up with the base M2 chip right now, um, but the piece does note that we're also expected to get a M3 Pro chip that has 12 or 18 cores, which would actually be up from the 10 and 16 currently offered in the M2 Pro. But those aren't expected to kind of show up until Apple revs, obviously, the MacBook Pro models, which should happen probably sometime next year. And those M3 chips are supposedly using the same 3 nanometer process from TSMC for manufacturing. As far as what model Macs we might see in the first round, it's likely going to be the 13-inch MacBook Pro, a new updated, finally, 24-inch iMac, and an updated 13-inch MacBook Air. It's a little iffy on whether we'll see the Mini at that October event, a rev for the Mini, or if Apple will wait on that for later in the year. On the horizon for next year, though, according to Mark Gurman, is an M3 Max chip, which should debut in a new Mac in those new MacBook Pro models. I would assume updates to the uh, 14-inch and 16-inch MacBook Pros. That is expected to have a 40-core GPU and a 16-core CPU with 12 high-performance cores and four high-efficiency cores. That's versus the 12 core CPU and 38 core GPU in the current M2 Max chip. So nice little revisions. Again, we typically with the processors see what a 15 to 20% performance increase over the previous generation. Looking at the core counts and sort of how things are lining up here, I would expect that's the same sort of area we'll see in terms of performance increase. Again, the big news here is using that new three nanometer process, which should make them again more efficient. So maybe we'll get some improved battery life, which is always really nice to see. So we'll have to uh, find out here in October. Now, as far as the Apple Watch goes, this year's Apple Watch, a lot of the signs are pointing to the fact that we're not going to see a whole bunch new with the Apple Watch. It's expected to be largely the same design and feature set as the Apple Watch Series 8. So 
you know, some of those rumored possible new health features like glucose monitoring are probably not going to see the light of day this year. The main tweak we're hearing about is updates to the S series chip, which could have some additional cores and offer better performance. Um, the one new thing that we might see is a new band design that gets launched with the Series 9. There's rumors that Apple is doing a new buckle design made with a weaved fabric and a magnetic buckle. So sort of like the leather buckle strap that they've done in the past, but this time with that weaved fabric material. And that'll be about it for the Series 9. If you're looking for the next major upgrade to Apple Watch, Mark Gurman says you're going to have to wait until the 10, or the I guess the, yeah, the Apple Watch 10 or X. Obviously, they're going to go with the Roman numeral versus the boring one zero digits, right? Apple likes their Roman numerals when they get to 10. And it will be the 10th version, 10th year of the Apple Watch. So it makes sense that they would save a major redesign for that launch. As far as what the improvements might be, he only really talked about two things, a thinner design, which would be really nice, and a new magnetic attaching system for the watch band that would allow them to have more internal room for the battery. So I'd imagine if they're getting thinner, they're going to need to widen out the battery a little bit to continue to maintain um, you know, the battery life and performance. Obviously, we'll see some processor improvements, so that'll help as well. But if it's getting thinner, I wouldn't expect much more battery life. Maybe they can squeeze in some more room there. Who knows? Uh, other possibilities for that update could be the release, finally, of a micro LED display for the Apple Watch, something Apple's rumored to have been working on for a long time and we've talked about for quite a while. And then additional sensors and monitors. Specifically, they cite blood pressure sensors and being able to take blood pressure in that version. So again, if you want, uh, you know, a big update to the Apple Watch, you might be waiting another year before we see that. Now we're hearing that Apple is going to have magic batteries, at least for the Apple Vision Pro. There were references spotted by an independent Apple code researcher, Aaron P613 on Twitter, or is it X. I don't, I don't know what it is now. I'm going to continue to call it Twitter because that's what I know it as. But anyway, he says that there's uh, references that indicate that the two-hour external battery pack that attaches to the headset, the Apple Vision Pro headset, via MagSafe will actually be called the magic battery. So Apple sticking with their whole magic terminology. Um, I don't think there's anything particularly special about that battery that makes it extra magic, but, you know, it's supposedly lightweight and can kind of fit in your pocket. And, you know, who knows? I guess that's magical in its own way. I guess the MagSafe attachment, I don't really know. But uh, you have that. And also last week, we saw a series of uh, patents around the Apple Vision Pro drop, and they included references to all kinds of possible feature accessories. Now, one that was particularly interesting that I read about was um, they have a patent for a device, and it's interesting that it would be a separate accessory, a device that would connect wirelessly with the um, Apple Vision Pro headset and could turn any large flat surface into a gesture control surface, like a large magic trackpad. And you might think, well, that's a little bit odd if you're going to have a separate device 
um, why wouldn't you just have a Magic Trackpad that worked with the Vision Pro? And I think the that will actually work. We know that keyboards will work. So um, it seems a little bit odd, but it does note that they have been working on the technology where it would just use the sensors inside the Apple Vision Pro to basically create a big multi-gesture control service, which could be really cool as well. And I guess in some ways it already sort of does that but uh you know if you're going to use it as a desktop replacement with the virtual screens and displays and stuff like that you're going to have virtual keyboards and virtual trackpads and all those sorts of things yeah they're working on all that and they're thinking about ideas around how to do that and we're seeing little hints and indicators of that in these patents And then finally, in the news for this week, Apple has added a new discovery station for Apple Music subscribers to the Music app. It's sort of like the other made-for-you style playlists that Apple offers, but the big difference here is this one's designed to help you with music discovery, and also it takes advantage of machine learning and AI and uh, it's also designed as a continuous PlayStation. So it's really about trying to find music discovery, things that you haven't listened to that the algorithm thinks that you will like. So it uses an AI algorithm to play music that you actually have not heard before that it thinks you will like based on what it knows about your music preferences and the kinds of music that you listen to. Now, there's also some updates to a companion personal station. So that's like the made for you station. It uses the algorithm as well, but it's really based on your play history, your likes and other factors already in Apple Music. So, it, you know, with that playlist, you might hear songs from your library. This other new discovery station is really designed to be sort of all new stuff that you haven't heard before. I don't know if you've had a chance to play around with this. I've been using it, and I like it quite a bit. Um, one disadvantage for me is my wife and I still share a uh, an Apple Music account or uh, an account that's attached to Apple Music, so her music is sort of influencing my recommendations, but I'm just going through and using the, hey, I like this, I don't like this functionality to kind of hopefully fine-tune the algorithm so it's a little more personal to me and yeah that reminds me i gotta get on getting her onto her own uh own account in the family thing but it's just one of those things i've been avoiding because it's a little bit tricky we've talked about that on the past here in on the show but another thing that i've noticed as i've been playing around with it is that while you can trigger your personal station from siri by asking her to play music she'd think she thinks you'd like so you just say hey play some music you think i'd like i cannot figure out how to get siri to play this new discovery station it's not quite working yet i don't know what the magic incantation is so if you figured that out let us know shoot me some feedback maccast at gmail.com and then one last little uh, media entertainment related thing that i found interesting this week that popped up it appears that apple is getting rid of their dedicated trailers app for um Apple TV. This is something, it's funny because I've heard a couple of people say they didn't even know it was still around. I use the trailers app all the time. I have it right on my home screen on my Apple TV and I play trailers through there quite frequently, but it sounds like it's actually moved. Apple's going to move that into the TV app proper. Um, 
number of people have noted seeing a new section that recently appeared in the TV app, at least in the United States, called Watch the Latest Trailers. I haven't seen that on my Apple TV yet, but I'm assuming it'll pop up or be there at some point. And there's also a banner on the Apple Trailers website. Did you know there was a Trailers website? (laughs) That says the Apple TV app is the new home of the iTunes movie trailers. So iTunes movie trailers and the Trailers app going away, all that stuff moving into the TV app. So if you're looking for that stuff, that's where you're going to go. But with that, that is going to do it for the news for this week. Before we move on, I do want to take a quick moment and I want to thank a couple of show sponsors, starting with ZocDoc. Hey, you know, to be honest, I am sort of a procrastinator when it comes to things in my life. And my medical care is one of those things. So as bad as it is, I often put off dealing with health issues or getting to the doctor longer than I think I should. And then I hate the whole process because I want to get an appointment. I I need it now because I've waited too long. And the whole process of finding a good doctor who can actually see me is just frustrating. And that's where ZocDoc comes in for me. ZocDoc is a free app where you can find amazing doctors and book appointments online. And we're talking about booking appointments with thousands of top rated doctors who are patient reviewed, which is another thing I love about ZocDoc. You actually get patient reviews, unlike going through, say, my healthcare providers portal, where it's just a list of the doctors. You can actually see patient reviewed doctors and know you're going to find someone who who's going to fit your personality and what you like and what you don't like. And you can filter for specific ones who take your insurance, who are located near you, and you can find doctors that can treat almost any condition that you're searching for. Plus, if you want to see a doctor quickly, and this is key for me, the average wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is between just 24 to 48 hours. That's it. And sometimes you can even get same day appointments. And the whole process of booking your appointment appointment is easy. It's just a few taps right inside the app. There's no waiting on the phone, no 30 minutes of terrible hold music, only to find out you can't get an appointment for weeks or months. So go to ZocDoc.com slash MacCast and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's ZocDoc.com slash MacCast, ZocDoc.com slash MacCast. And a big thank you to ZocDoc for their support of the show. I'd also like to thank my sponsor, Notion. Hey, if you have not heard about Notion yet, I think this is definitely something you're going to want to check out. Notion is a connected workspace app that lets you do all sorts of things like take notes, aggregate documents, set up to-dos, manage projects, make wikis, and a whole lot more all in one app and from one interface. It's been a great place for me to actually collect ideas for all sorts of things. I don't know if you're like me, but I have things constantly popping into my head. I get these all the, these ideas all the time, inspiration for new projects, topics for the show, future coding projects, things that I might want to build. And when I do that, I want a place where I can collect that, 
write it down, and then follow up on it. And Notion has been great for that because it's available to me anywhere, anytime, like on my phone in the middle of the night. Are you like this? I wake up in the middle of the night, have this great idea. Boom, it's on my phone. I can throw it into Notion. Plus, using Notion, it has Notion AI, and I can use that to start to help expand on my ideas. I can also use it to help do additional research all right inside the app. It's an add-on that brings an integrated AI right inside Notion. And that allows me to get answers to questions, craft my information all in a single place, and it plugs easily right into my workflow. I don't have to go to a separate app. I don't have to go to a separate place to get that help. And Notion AI helps you work faster, write better, and think bigger doing tasks that normally would take you hours in just seconds. Notion also has great features for managing projects and tracking projects. They have Kanban boards, all sorts of things. So try out Notion for free when you go to notion.com slash maccast. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash maccast to try out the incredible power of Notion AI today. And when you use our link, you're supporting the show. Try Notion AI for free right now at notion.com slash maccast. And a big thank you to Notion for their support of the show. David wrote in and he says, Hey, I am a big fan of Safari, but for some websites, I sometimes have to use a different browser. He didn't go into details why, but I've encountered this, so I have a feeling it's the same reason. Sometimes you go to a website, and for whatever reason, it just does not work with Safari. There's certain features that aren't supported. Oftentimes, it could be banking or financial websites, and I get it, because David's follow-up to this was, he says, hey, for security and privacy reasons, when I have to do this, I've chosen to use the Opera browser, which offers free built-in VPN. It also, for him, has a good balance of ease of use and security. But he says, even with that, I sometimes run into a problem because I use extensions or add-ons, things like um, Bitwarden, which is a password manager, and it doesn't plug in or offer all the features in Opera as it does in Safari. So he's looking for some recommendations of possible other browsers. He's mentioned that uh, some people have uh, recommended to him the Arc browser, um, which I went to the website and they claim it was built from the ground up to be private and secure. Um, It seems to mostly come down to their privacy policy and things surrounding what they're doing with search and tracking. I would recommend reading the privacy policy and checking it out for yourself. I'm not an ARC user, but it was just something that David mentioned. A few folks had had recommended to him. And um, he says, you know, what other browsers are folks using and might you recommend specifically that are focused on security and privacy? And um, obviously, he also wants something that's going to have decent compatibility with plugins like Bitwarden. Now, I have a feeling, David, that, you know, one thing you want to look at is there's not a lot of underlying browser technology that's used between these different browsers. It typically falls into two camps. You have WebKit, which is basically what Safari is built on. And then you have Chromium, 
which is what uh, Chrome browsers are built on top of. And I guess then you also have um, the Mozilla system, the Firefox. Um, so you kind of have three underlying platforms and then different browsers uh, are built on top of those technologies. So there tend to be a lot of similarities. Um, as far as secure browsers go, I know Brave is one that has been out there for a while and a lot of people have recommended. Again, I have never used it, so I'm not recommending it. I'm just throwing it out there as another browser that you might check out. Um, and again, if you have opinions about any of these browsers or experience with these browsers, shoot us some feedback, maccast at gmail.com, because that's sort of what David is looking for. Um, now, I want to talk a little bit about macOS and some of its built-in features and how it works. So macOS and iCloud have a feature called Private Relay that's basically designed to hide your real IP address from trackers when you're using Safari or the Mail app. And I think this is what David was alluding to at the top when he said, hey, I like to use Safari, but I can't always use it. So how can I get some of these you know, security privacy features in other browsers? And um, that's a great feature. It can cause some issues with sites that might actually need to see your IP address. This often comes up in maybe business situations. So maybe your company uh, is doing things with the IP or you're working for a school education network. Um, also, sometimes you might have uh, certain services or places that do rate limiting based on your IP address. Or, uh, for example, if you have a cell phone provider that offers services that don't go against your data cap, um, they will track that through IP. So sometimes, you know, hiding that IP can cause some problems and you might have to disable it. So if you're using the private relay, you actually can temporarily disable that for certain websites um, when you're in your browser. So if you're on an iPhone or iPad, you can tap on the page settings button, the little uh, AA icon in the URL bar, and then tap on show IP address. And you can do that on a per site basis on the Mac in Safari. You would go into the view menu and choose the reload and show IP address option to allow your IP address to be seen just temporarily. Um, you can also turn off private relay completely in the settings. So if you just don't want to use the feature, uh, you can on iOS go into settings, the settings app, tap on Wi-Fi uh, next to the Wi-Fi network, tap on the more info button, the little eye icon, scroll down and tap on the limit IP address tracking option. Just turn that off. Um, for cellular networks, you'll do it under settings, cellular, cellular data options. And same thing, tap on the IP, limit IP address tracking options to toggle that on or off. And then on Mac OS Ventura or later, um, it's in the system settings. You'll click on network in the sidebar and then click the network service that you're using. So if you're on Wi-Fi uh, on the right, click the little details button, the little eye icon in the name of the network that you're connected to. And then just turn off the limit IP address tracking to toggle on and off private relay. Um, I've been using private relay and haven't really encountered too many situations where I need to bypass or turn it off. So it's a nice little security and safety feature. Again, built in if you have iCloud and uh, are using Mac OS, uh, iOS, obviously, but iCloud is the key sort of there. As far as other ways to kind of protect your security and privacy when you're browsing online, I think a good option would be to just use a VPN. Um, this is actually a very good option if you're using 
public internet. Um, so if you're not on your home network, I would really recommend uh, finding and using a VPN. Um, just be aware, you know, VPN doesn't stop all tracking or you know, basically because you're going through your VPN provider. So your VPN provider is going to have access to that information. So you want to find a VPN provider that you trust. You want to review and understand their security policies, their privacy policies, and what they're doing with your data, how they handle your data. Um, so a few that I've used include NordVPN and ExpressVPN. I like both those services. I will mention that they both have been sponsors of this podcast, but uh, I continue to use them and they are not currently sponsors. So those are two great ones that I know a number of people recommend. I'm sure there's are, there are others out there that are really great. And if you have some recommendations or ones that you like, please send your feedback and emails to at gmail.com and we'll try to share those out. Another thing you can do is use tracking blockers. Uh, there are third-party blockers that work with browsers. Um, Safari has tracking, tracking blocking built in, as you might know. You can, when you're browsing, look up at the little shield icon in the browser bar, click on that, and you can see what trackers... Apple has actually blocked or restricted. Um, if you want to change the settings for a particular site in terms of the Safari tracking blocking, you can actually tap and hold or right-click on the URL bar to view and change the settings for a particular site. But you can also go with third-party extensions like Ghostery or OneBlocker. I've actually used OneBlocker for a while, and it works really, really well. I uh, actually pay for it, but uh, they do have a free version that offers uh, a number of features in terms of, um, you know, blocking trackers and, and protecting your protecting your privacy. Uh, just one thing to know, if you are using a third-party tracking blocker, they too can interfere with the functionality on some websites. So uh, you might have to adjust or disable settings depending upon the site. And it is one thing you need to remember when you're doing troubleshooting. I've often been on a website and went, hey, why is this feature not working on this website? And it turned out it was because I had one blocker turned on not that there was anything wrong with my browser or the software or the site itself. So just be aware when you're using <laughs> when you're using tracking blockers or blockers of any kind that they can't add, you know, like ad blockers, they can interfere with intended functionality and you might not realize it. So there's a few things that you can do, David. I'm sure that our members in the community will have some additional recommendations and uh, you can probably look forward to us following up on those in a future episode of the MacCast. Here's something to be aware of, and a big thanks to Rick, who wrote in to tell me about an issue with location services in macOS Ventura. This came up after updating to uh, macOS 13.5. That update came out, I think, a week or so ago. And it seems like after that update came out. If you go into system settings, privacy and security, location services, you will actually no longer see the long list of apps that you have installed and the location settings and privacy settings that you've 
uh, set for that app, which actually really, really stinks. Because worse is that it seems like since this bug was introduced, you can now no longer give or deny access to a specific app after upgrading. And like I said, this update came out on July 26th, and Apple still has not issued a patch to fix it. So if you haven't upgraded, I I very rarely would would recommend that you do not upgrade or do an update because there were some security updates in 13.5 that you probably want. Um, But because of the loss of this setting, I would say if you haven't updated yet, maybe hold off until 13.5.1 comes out and this bug is fixed. So Apple, I don't know what you're doing, but you need to get on top of this one. This should have been fixed immediately in my opinion but thanks rick for letting us know about about this and then finally uh for this week i have a great question that i think is very timely and it comes from ben who is sending his daughter and her mac off to college in the fall so first of all congratulations ben that is a big step Um, and I have a feeling you're among many parents out there who are sending their kids off to college this fall for the first time. And he had some great questions because he wonders, uh, one, is it wise to enable the Mac's built-in firewall, uh, since she will be on the school's Wi-Fi and wired network while at school? And then two, are there any other software or tips that I would recommend, or really we would recommend as a community, to keep her MacBook safe while at school. And it's interesting because I'm going to answer this question, but I would say overall, a lot of the things I'm going to talk about here are good recommendations for anyone when they're on any network, especially any network that's not in their control. So any public network or any other network that they're connecting to, I think all of these recommendations and ideas should apply. But I would say, starting with the first question, it is always wise to enable the Mac's built-in firewall. I actually have mine enabled. Um, You could easily grant permissions to apps when they need it. They can ask for that permission. And just allows you to control what's going on with your Mac, specifically with inbound connections you know outbound connections are going to be fine you're going to be able to call out you know get a website all that sort of stuff but if something needs access to your mac inbound you're going to want to know that it wants that access and you're going to be able to say yes or no so those inbound connections you're going to want to control and the mac has a great built-in firewall for doing that it's easy to turn on you just flip a switch in settings and uh, away you go so I would definitely use that at the very least. Now, another thing is just general good advice when you're connecting to any external network, you know, uh, Wi-Fi especially, is know the network that you're connecting to. Know you're connecting to the right one because, you know, hackers and people who want to steal your information, they're going to spoof those networks. So, you know, chances are if you're connecting to a school network, it's going to be a secured network. So if you if you see, you know, my school name network and it's not secured, big red flag, right? That's, that's likely not going to be the network that you want to connect to, even though it has the same name. And speaking of those names, 
Uh, you should always make sure that you're checking and managing your Wi-Fi known networks list because the Mac tries to help you out and uh, will automatically connect to known networks. And a known network is any Wi-Fi network that you've connected to in the past. And it's based off of that well, that network's name. So you can imagine if you're using public Wi-Fi at a hotel, Hilton Hotels is the name of that network commonly. Well, anybody could call their network Hilton Hotels and your Mac is going to try to automatically connect to that. Same thing with Starbucks and Panera and all these things. And I would imagine the same thing could happen with school networks. A nefarious person on that school network, again, could set up a fake network your Mac goes, hey, I know that network. I'm going to connect to it. So you want to review that list. So go into system settings, go into network, go into Wi-Fi, and look at the settings there. And I would consider turning off, and this may say, seem counterintuitive, but I would consider turning off the Ask to Join Networks option. This is the option that anytime it sees a new network, it's going to pop up a message and say, hey, do you want to connect to this Wi-Fi network that I don't know and I've never seen before? And then you just randomly click yes. And if it's unsecured, you've connected to it. You want to deliberately connect to a Wi-Fi network when you're looking for it. So by turning this off, you have to go through the manual process of when you're not connected to Wi-Fi, going up to Wi-Fi or going to Wi-Fi settings and actually selecting and picking the network to connect to. Now, known networks are a separate situation because your Mac is always going to try to automatically connect to known networks. That's just the convenience because, say, you're you're on your home Wi-Fi, you leave the house and you come back, you want it to automatically connect to that home Wi-Fi. Here is where you're going to want to review the list. So in the window here, click on advanced and then review the list of known networks. Chances are you're going to see a bunch that you've connected to in the past. Make sure that you remove any old networks that you don't access on a regular basis and specifically all of those public, you know, hotel, airport, uh, Panera, McDonald's, whatever it is, get rid of those. Take those out of there so that the next time you go to one of those locations, you're forced to manually reconnect and you know that you're making that connection and there's not something, you know, odd going on in the background. And I would say the same thing for your school networks, your classroom networks, your conference networks, you know, any place you've ever connected to before. So definitely do that. This is another big one. Disable shared services on your Mac. Your Mac has a lot of cool things it can do with shared services like file sharing and music sharing and remote access and screen sharing and all those sorts of services, right? And maybe at one point in the past you turned those on, you want to make sure those are turned off, especially anytime you're connecting to another network because if they're on, when you connect to that network, anybody on that network is going to be able to see those services that you're sharing. And if you're sharing your files, <laughs> your documents folder. Yeah, that could be a problem. Now, hopefully you've got it locked down to specific accounts, but that's an opportunity for maybe to somebody to try to hack in or hack against that. So make sure you go to system settings, general sharing, and make sure all of those shared services are turned off unless you specifically need them. And if they are turned on, make sure you review the access and that it is restricted to only the people you want to give access to. So click on the little eye icon 
set up users and permissions on each service. Make sure it's set up exactly how you want and it's password protected with really good secure passwords and maybe only your personal account. Uh, you can set up all kinds of things related to those services, but just be careful with those. In general, most people don't need them. Most people don't use them. So just make sure they're all completely turned off. And this would go for your daughter, especially because when she's on the school network, if any of those are on, anybody on that school network is going to be able to potentially see that. So be aware of that. Then we have AirDrop, right? Great feature, very, very convenient, but you want to make sure that AirDrop sharing is restricted, right? It should not be set to everyone can send me AirDrop files. So click on AirDrop in the finder, in the sidebar, and at the bottom of the window, make sure you check the allow me to be discovered by settings. It should not be everyone. Contacts is a good option. You know, only people in my contacts can send me stuff or even better yet, set it to nobody until you actually need somebody to airdrop you something. And then you could change that setting, let them airdrop it to you and change it back. That's the most secure. And that's what I would typically recommend. Um, you know, contacts is okay, but that's even more secure. As we talked about earlier, consider using a VPN. Uh, that would be a great option for protecting your data and your privacy. I don't know if that's always allowed on campuses or if you'll be able to use all the services on the campus. If you're going through a VPN, that could pose a problem. So that might not be an option, but something to consider and maybe look into. Another one would be use a different DNS service. Now, this is not as much a security thing as a reliability thing, in my opinion, but um, also some third-party DNSs will filter out and block malicious websites. So it's going to protect you not necessarily on the network at school, but can protect you in other ways. So um, again, this may or may not be something the campus lets you do, uh, but you don't have to necessarily use their DNS. And you can change your DNS network settings to something like Cloudflare's, uh, which I use 1.1.1.1. I'll have a link to that in the show notes at maccast.com. What's cool about Cloudflare is they also have a thing called Warp, which is this little app you can install, can install, and it's a VPN. And it allows you to go through their Cloudflare network instead of um, just the internet at large. And uh, they claim better performance, better speed, stuff like that. But that one's really easy to use and convenient for... I use it a lot when I'm just at a public Wi-Fi network, for example. But if you want to use 1.1.1.1 as your DNS, I'll have a link to their instructions in the show notes at maccast.com. But basically, you just go into your Mac's or your device's network settings, and you can change the DNS settings to the ones for Cloudflare servers versus your ISP servers. Um, you can also do this at the router level, which is what I do on my home network, so that all devices on your network will actually use that DNS. So there's a number of sort of network things that you can do uh, in terms of controlling your security and privacy. Another thing to talk about, though, is just the physical security in and around the Mac itself. And there's a lot of good recommendations there, especially if you're going to be in a shared space like a dorm. So 
One is consider a physical locking system or mechanism for the Mac itself, especially if it's a laptop. You can get cables, you can get lockdown devices. So when it's in the dorm, it's actually physically locked to a table or, um, and someone can't just, you know, pick it up and walk off with it. Um, definitely don't leave your Mac unattended, right? If you go and you're using it somewhere, uh, say the library, or, you know, on campus at, uh, you know, you know, the dining hall or something like that. Don't get up and walk away from your machine, leave it unattended, leave it unlocked, which would be even worse. So it should always be locked when you walk away from it. Uh, it should have a good login password that's safe and secure. You want to make sure that when it goes to sleep or the screensaver turns on that you add the settings so that it actually gets locked when that when those events happen. Consider you using the hot corners to lock it. Um, make sure the time between when, you know, the screensaver comes on or when it goes to sleep and it locks is reasonably short. Um, and again, make sure that you choose a really good password. Um, for other things like all of the logins you're probably going to need for your campus network, your campus email, all that sort of stuff, pick really strong, secure, unique passwords for everything. Make sure you're not reusing passwords. Use a password manager like 1Password uh, to keep all that stuff safe and secure. On your Mac, make sure you have encryption turned on for your hard drive. Use FileVault. Turn on FileVault. It's great. And again, all of these things apply, I think, to anybody, not just someone going to school. Uh, use it on your, your backup drives like Time Machine because if someone comes in and physically steals your Time Machine backup and it's not encrypted, guess what? They have all your data. So you want to make sure you do that. Turn on Find My Mac, which enables you know your ability to find your Mac if someone should actually steal it, but also gives you the ability to remote lock it, remote wipe it, all those sorts of things to protect your data. And then always, always be aware of your surroundings, especially when you're unlocking your Mac or using your Mac, right? Is someone looking over your shoulder? Is there a weirdo over in the corner doing something that just seems odd? We should always be alert and aware of our surroundings when we're using our computer. So, you know, this was a great, great question, Ben. Um, this was just the list of thoughts and ideas that I had. I'm sure members of our community have a lot of experience and a lot of knowledge around this sort of thing and probably have additional great recommendations. So if you have a recommendation for Ben, please send an email or an audio comment in and we will share that on a future episode maccast at gmail.com but with that that is going to do it for the show for this week thank you for hanging out with me before i leave you i want to thank a couple of show supporters bandwidth for the maccast is provided by cashfly you can find them at c-a-c-h-e-f-l-y.com and all advertising on the maccast is handled by backbeat media they are at backbeatmedia.com as always, I love hearing from you. If you have a comment, a question, something you'd like to hear covered on a future episode of the MacCast, you can send your emails and audio comments to maccast at gmail.com. You're also welcome to call in on the listener hotline and leave a voicemail. That phone number is 281-622-4269, 281-MAC-IM-9. 
If you need show notes, uh, links to anything that I talked about on this or any other episode of the MacCast, you can find those on the website. That's at MacCast.com. And finally, if you want to follow me on social media, you can find me on Twitter or X or whatever it's going to be called these days as MacCast. You can check out the Facebook page over at Facebook.com slash the MacCast or find me on Instagram, just MacCast on Instagram, pretty much MacCast anywhere you will find me on social media. But with that, that is going to do it for now. Until next time, I will talk to you all again real soon.